Ladies and gentlemen, welcome to the TWS podcast. It's lights out and away we go. I got free sausages sent to me every week for a year. Brilliant. <laughs> no, I never really got to, I never really got to a place where I could call Michael a friend of mine, really. Don't worry, guys, I'm back. Panic's over. I'm here. And it was Wayne Rooney who walked through the doors. And I remember him saying, just make the most of every moment. Hello, my name is Simon Lazeby and I'm a presenter on Sky Sports. You may have seen me present sports such as the F1, international rugby, England cricket and golf from around the world. However, I wanted to come and give you some information about the TWS Sports Podcast. The TWS Sports Podcast is the only podcast in the UK which is hosted by autistic students who interview some of the biggest names in sport. Each week, they speak to a different sports person and delve deep into their lives, talking about the highs and the lows of their career and what makes them a top athlete in their sport. The TWS Sports Podcast were voted the best sports podcast in the world that promotes social equality. They picked up that honour at the 2021 Sports Podcast Awards. So if you're a sports fan and want to hear these great stories with questions from some amazing young people who promote autism, then the TWS Sports Podcast is the podcast for you. Tatnobud School is a school for autistic children and young adults, and we have set this podcast up to provide our pupils with a fantastic opportunity to develop a range of skills whilst interviewing top sportsmen and women from a variety of different sports. Joining us today on the TWS Sports Podcast is a former footballer. He played for teams such as Birmingham, Reading and Brighton. Welcome to the podcast, Nicky Forster. Thank you for having me. Um, I really appreciate it. Thank you. Before we start, we just wanted to say that if throughout this podcast, if you have any questions for us about anything uh, about our podcast or you have a question about autism, then please ask. We'd like to answer your questions too. Okay, well, I, I've got. I, I thought you might say that, and I've got some questions ready, so um, I can. I drop them in as we go through, or, or I'll, uh, I'll quiz you at the end after you've quizzed me, uh, Tom. Okay. <laughs> Thanks. Who is the most famous person in your phone book? Oh my God, that was one of my questions. Um, uh, <laughs> who's uh, who's the most famous person in um, uh, in my fa- in my phone book? Um, um, I think I'd, I'd probably some of my former managers. Um, I've got Joe Royal in my uh, in my phone book. I've got Alan Pardew, Steve Koppel. Um, um, so I think it would have to be a former professional football player, Les Ferdinand. I think I've got in my phone book, although I, I don't think I've ever called for Les. So, uh, so it's got to be a former player. Okay. If you could trade Lars of anyone for a day, who would it be, and why? If I could trade places. Yeah, like lives, like anyone. Okay, this is the the, the um. I, I this might be a bit deep, but I, I think it would have to be a female because I think um. Sometimes I look at my wife and she looks like um uh, looks at me as though I'm from a different planet, and I'm sure I probably <laughs> looked. I'm sure I probably looked at her sometimes and thought. I just uh, you're from another planet you know men are from Mars women are from Venus I think is a famous saying so I think it would be um it would be uh to to jump into someone's body who is um famous but but um a member of the opposite sex so female so I think um off the top of my head I'm gonna say uh Beyonce uh be quite interesting to lead um a day in Beyonce's life so let's let's use her okay if you could have any superpower what would you have and why? 
Oh, do you know what? It's between flying and being invisible. Um, mm. I mean, Superman being able to fly. Um, but I, I, I suppose, um, actually I've just come up with another one. Being able to go into the future because, um, you could use that for so much good. So, um, in, instead of um, being invisible or instead of um, being able to fly, I think I'm going to say um, travel to the future and be able to come back because then you could do um, uh, a lot of good, a lot of damage, a lot of harm maybe, but if you put it to the right use, you could do a lot of good. Because from what I remember, a few past guests have said invisibility because I think it's just mainly due to like what hijinks they get up to. In a sense, <laughs> I wouldn't blame them wanting to have that as a superpower. <laughs> we've seen it, haven't we? Harry Potter with his invisibility cloak. And, um, you know, uh, we've seen him having some fun with his friends on uh, uh, on Harry Potter. But, um, yeah, I mean, uh, it sounds great, doesn't it? Just being able to ghost up on people and tap them on the shoulder. And, I mean, that's uh, that's that's the ultimate, it's the ultimate joke, right? True. <laughs> Thank you for answering those questions. Let's chat about your career. We want to take you back to the beginning and talk about your childhood. What are your memories of growing up and did you always want to be a footballer? Ah, oh, so it's, it's a, a good one. Um, I, I tell you why, Tom, because I don't actually look back very, very much. I'm not very good at looking back. I'm always like focusing on what am I going to do next? Where am I going? And, and, um, my role now as a coach or life coach and goal setting coach is is always about going back. And um, the difference between sort of coaching and counselling is coaches help people move forward and, and counsellors um, look back over the past and help them deal with the past to be able to move forward. So I don't look back very, very much. So it's a really good question. So my childhood was a really a lucky childhood my mum and dad were together and um, sadly not the case for lots of kids growing up nowadays. Um, but I had two brothers, an, an older brother and a younger brother, and especially my older brother. He was someone that I looked up to and, and do still today. He's he's my ultimate hero. And playing football with his friends down the park, I had to I had to sort of toughen up and become resilient and, and become better physically and, and technically and, and a, a better football player all the time just to be able to cope with the, the the friends and play with him and he was three years older so really happy days playing down sort of parks the old-fashioned jumpers for goalposts you know playing in the summer and the summer holidays we'd go out at nine o'clock in the morning and only came back in the evening when we were starving hungry it's the only you know nowadays it, it's, it's life's different but um you know I was very privileged um sort of growing up and sort of born in the 70s and grew up my sort of formative years were through the sort of early 80s and um that's why I sort of the era I sort of um relate to the most and my music tastes are all sort of 80s sort of related bands and so forth so um you know I felt I feel I had a pretty privileged up, upbringing um I never thought that my love for sport and my love for professional football would take me to professional football and a career in it so that came later on and an opportunity um, um, came to me, which I just happened to take. And there's a story in that, which we'll possibly go through later, but I was very, very lucky, you know, very privileged um, 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 background growing up in Surrey. Um, you, you had a great opportunity when you were 17 to play against Gillingham. That was a big turning point in your career, wasn't it? It was, and that's what I was talking about. I remember, um, and it's a real good lesson here um, for, for all of us, and including myself still, um, 
because at the end of a training game, I was playing for a youth team, um, Hawley Town, playing for the youth team, and the manager came in at the end of the game, end of training session, and said, "Don't go, anyone. Stay in the changing room. We've got a meeting in about ten minutes." Ten minutes came, and and everyone was wanting to go home. You know, oh, I want to go home. I want to go home. And the first team manager walked in, and and uh, he said, "Look, there's a there's a game against Gillingham on Tuesday night." I suggest all you youth team boys come down, have a look, watch the game, see how pros, professional players, the team we were playing against, Gillingham, um, see how they play, how they are physically, tactically, technically. It's really good to come and see professional people play their sport. And he said, and if anyone wants to join in, then just let me know, just put your hand up and you can come on in the second half. And Tom, I looked around the room and no one put their hand up. And I remember looking around thinking, someone put their hand up. Because when someone puts their hand up, I'm going to put my hand up. But no one did. No one would, no one would take that, you know, take that chance, take that risk, you know, conquer that fear because there was that, oh, I don't want to play against pros. You know, they're they're much too good for me. They're going to make me look silly. They're going to humiliate me. I'm not strong enough. I'm not quick enough. I'm not good enough. And nobody put their hand up. And in the end, the, the manager said, um, you know, does no one want to play? No, none of you want to. It's a good opportunity. And nobody did. And in the end, just one lad just, yeah, I'll, I'll have a game. Out of all those lads, no one did. And um, that lad played and did average in the game, didn't do particularly special, but was asked by Gillingham to go on a trial and went on a trial and then got taken on um, with a one-year contract, which became a two-year contract and then um, a career in football. And that person was me. And if I hadn't have put my hand up and said, yeah, I'll have a game, then I never would have had the career that I had. I'm sure of that. And it really is a case of sometimes we have to be brave, take ourselves in a place of fear maybe or out of our comfort zone just to just to live that that life and if had i not just done that simple thing of just put my hand up in the air when i was in you know in fear of doing so then well i i, I probably wouldn't be here talking to you today to be honest i bet like a lot of people can relate to that story because i feel like the most one of the most valuable lessons in sport which i learned a few years ago is people shouldn't fear failure because like for example, if a certain athlete or player losing the sport, from that like time of losing or they didn't, you know, do the certain position properly in sport, they can improve from that from each time they play again and again and again. And I feel like from that, people can learn also from that as well. So I feel like failure isn't always a negative. People can turn the failures into positives, especially out of sport as well. I mean, absolutely. Listen, failure is, you know, not a negative in any way. If we think about everything we've ever done in life from um, learning to walk, you know, when we probably don't even remember ourselves learning to walk, we must have fallen down hundreds of times before we actually got the act of walking. Same with using a knife and fork, same with learning to ride a bike, same with, you know, everything we've ever done. You look at yourself now, Tom, you know, the way you're talking, the way you're doing this. I should imagine if you look back to your early podcasts before you all become superstars and won your award that you recently have won, I should imagine you probably weren't as good as you are now. 
and we get better with with every single failure because we learn and and that's what life is about so um i completely agree you weren't at a club youth system you played non-league football do you think that helped you when you were younger and what advantages and disadvantages did that give you over lads your age who were in youth setups you've set up yes that's a really good question um the disadvantage is probably easy to see is that technically, um, technically i wasn't as good as some of the other players that had had that technical coaching from a young age so my control wasn't as good as some of the others and my passing probably wasn't as good as the others. In fact, my control was so bad. My first name for the first two or three years at my first club was ping pong because the ball <laughs> used to bounce off me like a ping pong ball off a, off a table tennis bat. So, um, um, but um, so so in terms of technically, I I wasn't as good as some of the others. In terms of what helped me, I think playing um, non-league, and I, I sort of spoke about it before playing. I get, you know, with my brother and his friends who are three years older, I had to learn to be tough, you know, and resilient very quickly. And of everything I've achieved in my career, football career, the two things I'm more proud of than anything else, and I think sort of um, define me more than anything else, more than the successes I had and more than the promotions and some of the, the famous players that, that was your first question, who's the most famous player in your phone book? So more, more, um, more than all the, the, the players I played with or against, the thing I'm most proud of are the amount of games I played, 720-odd games, and the amount of goals I scored, 200-and-something goals. And if it wasn't for um, that early um, sort of grounding and resilience tests that I had as a, a child growing up and then playing in non-league because it's a tough form of football, I possibly wouldn't have reached that um, the, those figures um, in terms of appearances and goals. So that's where non-league um, probably helped me. Okay. You left Gillingham and the fans turned on you a bit for leaving. How do you find those times when the fans turn on you as a player? Yeah, I, I sort of understand it. And Tom, it was tough because um, I left Gillingham and I understand that they were towards um the bottom of the league and we managed to stay up and but i had a better opportunity that i thought would um progress me which it turned out to do i played for brentford for three years and i played for england under 21s and then took that step up again so in terms of was it the right move at the right time it was and i i, I sort of enraged the Gillingham fans as a result um, and I, in fact I went back to Gillingham to play a testimonial um, for a goalkeeper and um, uh, so gave up my time at the end of the season to play in a charity sort of testimonial game and got booed by the Gillingham fans every time I touched the ball <laughs> so I thought this is a bit much and I've come back to show some respect to uh, a player uh, in his testimonial and got booed but uh, you know what um, I, I, I think even though there is that animosity, I think there's a good natured animosity and we see it now a lot now when um, 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 clubs, although there is rivalry and although there is sort of, um, 
you know that that friendly banter sometimes the, the football community comes together a lot as it does in in all other sports and all other sort of areas of life when when it becomes serious then there is that collective unity and we saw it this week I think with um Nottingham Forest fans clapping um the Liverpool fans um because I think it was a, an anniversary of the Hillsborough disaster so it was a really nice touch and that's a good example of that all right <clears throat> As a young player, you moved around and went out on loan before join, joining Brentford. As a young player, how do you find moving around and what is life like for you at that time? It, 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 when you go out on loan at different places, it's hard to get continuity. You can just sort of get that sort of comfort of being in the same place that, that sometimes some players need, others not so much. I found it okay. Um, the whole sort of Gillingham thing was um, was a sort of real education into professional sport. I come from non-league. I come out of doing my A levels and then just gone into professional sport, and it was very different. The environment's very different, and um, just sort of learning about it. You know the, the demands of professional sport. You know how you looked after yourself away from training. You know first first couple of weeks of professional sport you know um I, I roomed with someone I lodged in a house and roomed with another player and he'd go back in the afternoon and, and sleep for two hours and I'd be like wow well, what why are we going to sleep at two o'clock in the afternoon you know I, I don't go to sleep until probably midnight um he says you're going to need your sleep so get some sleep so I sort of slept because that's what they all did so it was a real education really um but in terms of going on loan and and I look back now and it was, again, a really good grounding, a really good way of, of sort of strengthening myself, giving myself both physical but also mental resilience um, because you, you really need it with the struggles um, of life that we, we all have and are more aware of nowadays. Um, you know, having that resilience for life is important because there are lots of mental health issues and, and life can be a challenge for lots of people. So... I believe those things and all those different experiences that I had have helped me to to cope with life as I as I go through life. You spent three years at Brentford scoring lots of goals. How do you reflect on your time at the club? Oh, I like you, Tom. When you say lots of goals, that <laughs> sounds great. So uh, <laughs> I love that. Still a greedy goal scorer. Never change. Um, they were great days. They were great days, just sort of riding the crest of a wave, successful, the team was successful, scoring goals, played for England under 21s and, you know, almost like this is just, this is just great, just really enjoyed it. And then there were rumours that Crystal Palace were coming in for me or trying to buy me and that Brentford were commanding too much money or, or too much more than Crystal Palace were going to pay and or prepared to pay. And that deal fell flat. They went and signed someone else. And I found that really tough because I thought, okay, this is the next step. Um, I've, I think it would be good for me. So I'd like to perhaps go. And it didn't happen. And I found that coping with that, that disappointment, that affected me. When I look back, my following season was nowhere near as good as it should have been. And I, I found it tough. So 
it, it was a great time, but it was also, again, another very valuable lesson about, you know, there are times when things are going really well, but around the corner, something could happen that could just change that, just affect that. And then it makes a big you know, difference, a significant difference. So um, it, I, I look back at Brentford and the first time around with Brentford was just a, a fantastic time um, and a, a great learning experience. You have a unique skill of leaving a club and and that club gets promoted. <laughs> <laughs> what was that down to all your hard work and laying <laughs> solid foundations at the club to allow them to gain promotion? I feel like if, if this was uh, a question that Alyssa would have said, she would have like been like, Adam. <laughs> <laughs> brilliant research and brilliant reasoning as to why these clubs all get promoted when i leave it's because i've done all, all the groundwork and my um selfless um uh, nature was that i could leave and let them take the glory while stars there um but yeah you know what um there is a bit of a trait um a bit of a trend with me leaving clubs and then getting promoted the next year and so um when i realized it i used to say to every club should sign nicky forster if only to get rid of him and then achieve the subsequent success that they're going to achieve after it. So um, thank you for, um, are we going to just release this whole podcast in full or should we edit this bit out? This will be a bit edited out, right? <laughs> I guess we'll see. I've got a feeling it's going to stay in. <laughs> thanks. Thanks for reminding me, Tom. <laughs> no problem. <laughs> you have played with some great players and real characters can you talk to us about who the Jokers were in your career and can you remember any funny pranks? Oh, um, um, I'm just going to try and think of some really funny ones um, that I can um, say on a podcast that aren't too rude. Um, uh, Dean Windass um, at Hull was a really funny guy. Um, really, um, really enjoyed him. Uh, I remember um, when we were at Hull, we used to... Um, um, we used to eat after training most clubs would get served food after training one of the guys who lived on his own he didn't have a girlfriend or wife or something used to bring a tupperware box in and fill that tupperware box up with food and um uh, he'd then take it home reheat it and eat it in the evening so he didn't have to cook and um one day spaghetti bolognese um put it in his tupperware box went out training dean windas came in um, took it all out, put some pasta in, and put dog food on there as bolognese. So he, he oh, mixed up loads of this dog food and then let him take it home. <laughs> so uh, it was it was sort of pranks like that, really. Um, but Dean Windass was a, a really funny guy, and uh, Glenn Glenn Little was a really funny guy as well. At um, during my time at Reading, but he was just like his his speech. He was a, a really funny guy. Um, but, um, sadly, a lot of the stories, um, are, are stories that I probably can't, um, relay on, uh, relay on this podcast. <laughs> <laughs> you then moved to Birmingham and played in a great squad with the likes of Steve Bruce. What was that move like for you? And what are your memories of the squad? Yeah, I mean, you, you sort of said it there. Um, I went from no disrespect from Gillingham to Brentford and then to Birmingham. And I was catapulted into not only a club with superstars in it, but the size of the club, no disrespect again to um, 
to Gillingham or Brentford, especially when you look at Brentford now in the Premier League and doing as well as they're doing. But at that time, in terms of the club, wasn't nearly the size of Birmingham. Birmingham, they used to get in regularly 30,000 um, fans every single week. Brentford were getting about 6,000, 7,000 and Gillingham were getting about two, 3,000. So it was a huge jump. And uh, and and the, the players, I mean, forget the players when i signed for birmingham they had mike newell um barry horn um steve bruce as you say anders limpar um players that you know were household names and um you know really really high profile players and it, it was just such a huge jump and um it was it was quite intimidating in some ways quite um overbearing but um i started off really well scored a goal on my debut and uh and then scored in my next two games but suddenly picked up a knee injury that i, I wasn't too sure I didn't feel too bad but i thought something's not quite right and then when i had my scan i found out that i damaged my acl cruciate ligament which is a sort of six to nine month rehab so that was my first um, experience of a long-term injury that would keep me out for multiple months so it was a real challenge of a time um gone to this big club started doing really well and then suddenly that was cut short and and, and then I had to face um, a long period on the sidelines but the problem with that is because of the financial power of a club like Birmingham by the time I came back, they'd bought Paul Furlong, Peter Unlove, Dealey Adebola. So straight away, you're at the bottom of the, the list of strikers that they're going to choose on. And you've got to sort of build yourself back up that list. So it was tough because the calibre of players that they sign when you are, when you're out injured is, 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 in, you know, is amazing. So uh, unfortunately, I didn't play as much as I wanted to play at Birmingham. And in the end, decided to to leave so I could play football because I was never a player that was happy um, sitting on the bench. I was always uncomfortable, unhappy. I always wanted to play, wanted to be out there. So I left. Uh, after a few seasons at Birmingham, you then moved to Reading. Why did you do that move? Why did that move come about? And why Reading? Um you know what? It just felt right. And there was a story and I, I spoke to um, uh, a fan the other day because I actually went up to Preston and spoke to Preston and the manager at that point was David Moyes. And um, I, I was going to sign for them. And um, on the way back home from speaking to Pres uh, Preston and I asked for the weekend just to think about it and make sure it was right. Um, uh, Reading contacted me and asked me to go and see them, which I did on the way home. And it just felt, I don't know, it just felt right, just felt um, the right fit for me. And um, I signed, I opted to sign for, for Reading, much to the annoyance of David Moyes. In fact, I had a, an MRI scan um, on my knee just to make sure my knee was all right whilst I was up um, um, talking to Preston. And um, about a week later, they sent me the bill for the MRI scan. They wanted me to pay for it. So uh, they were really unhappy that I chose Reading. But it turned out to be a really good move. I spent six years there. The most I, most time I spent at any club, felt at home there, liked, enjoyed my life there. And, um, you know, I will always be um thankful to Reading because um in lots of ways they taught me so much. Um my time with Alan Pardew and uh Steve Koppel were, were, were great times. Uh, Alan Pardew was manager at Reading. What was he like as a manager and a person? 
Okay, so um, pards. Um, I think most people who are in football um, either are, are divided with pards. They either love him or, or hate him, like Marmite. And um, for me, he was was fantastic. He was one of the top three managers that I played under. I knew exactly what he wanted of me, knew exactly um, what, what was expected, and I just loved playing from. Pards had this way about him that made us all feel like we were, when I say all, the ones that liked him, like we were riding the crest of a wave. Everything was just like, you know what, we're going somewhere. There were some that didn't like him and didn't get on with him, and very often they left. But um, for me, Pards was was a, a key um, guiding figure in terms of me as a player. And um, um, a lot of some of the things I learned under Pards um, in terms of now me as a coach and a goal-setting coach, I use some of the lessons that he taught me and us um, during our time together. So, yeah, Pards was, um, Pards was brilliant for me. Uh, Martin Allen was a player at Reading. He was crazy, wasn't he? He Didn't was. He, he used on. to call youth team players over to tackle. And do you have any other stories about him? Oh, again, lots of stories about Mad Dog. Um, his nickname was Mad Dog and he was completely mad. Um, but again, he played his, he really did play a part in transforming Reading from a team that was struggling into a team that built themselves up and up and up through pards and onto Steve Koppel and got promoted to the Premier League. Um, in terms of Martin Allen, oh my gosh, we we could do a weekend's podcast and I couldn't get through the stories. I mean, <laughs> just for example, there was one game, Preston away. When we were go we went back to Preston when I'd signed for Preston um, for Reading. And as I told you, I I um I turned down Preston. And when we played against them, uh, they were at the top of the league and we were struggling at the bottom. And Martin Allen said, right, everyone get ready. Um, don't put your boots on, put your trainers on. Because instead of going out for the warm up on the pitch, you need your trainers. So we were like, all right, OK, we were away at Preston. And he took us outside the ground where all the fans were sort of attending and queuing up for burgers and getting their programmes and queuing up to get in. We started jogging around the outside of the whole ground at Deepdale and doing a warm-up outside with all and the fans were looking like, what's going on here? It was surreal. We had us pushing against the burger van to stretch out our calves and you know, running up and down high knees, do you know what I mean? In front of the burger <laughs> vans. And people were looking like, what is going on here? And um, and then when we did go on the pitch to do some work, he said, instead of warming up, and you know when you see a football pitch and one team warm up in one end of the pitch or one half and the other team warm up in the other half, he said, whatever half they warm up in, we're going to go and warm up in the same half. <laughs> so we went out and we're all on the same half and they're like, in a, in a not so pleasant way, get lost, go into the other half. <clears throat> excuse me. And he said, no, we're warming up in this half. And they said, no, no, we're warming up in this half. And he, he said, no, no, we are. So it was surreal. There was like 35, 40 people on one half of the pitch, all warming up, <coughs> excuse me. And on the other half was completely empty. And the ref came out and said, no, no, you can't do that. Martin said, well, show me where we're not allowed to do that. And it was just to unsettle Preston. And it worked because we got a, a draw there, a 2-2 draw, and they were 
second or first in the league and we were towards the bottom. So it really unsettled them. So lots of stories like that with Martin. Um, you have <coughs> had a number of transfers in your career. Can you talk to us about how a transfer deal happens? How much influence do you have or do you leave it to your agent? What additional things might you get in a contract such as goal bonuses, rewards or sanctions, etc.? Yeah, really good question because like I spoke to before, my agent told me that Crystal Palace were interested in me um, when um, I was at Brentford and Brentford, the manager at that point, Dave Webb, wanted too much money for me. So they lost interest and went somewhere else. And that really frustrated me because I thought it was Brentford holding up my, my career progression. It was Brentford being greedy. Um, and I just thought that it was, I just thought it was wrong at the time. Um, so generally you do find out when clubs come in for you through your agent or clubs approach your club to try and buy you. But do you have a say? You only get a say when the club that you are with um, agrees and says, look, um, they've come in for you. They've agreed. We've agreed a fee so you can now go and speak to them. So it, it sort of works like that. If they don't agree a fee or they don't want to sell you, then very often the club won't tell you and you'll possibly hear through your agent. But there's nothing you can do. If you signed a contract and you you know, you, you, you want to go, but they don't want you to go. Ultimately you can't go unless there is a deal that is reached and players nowadays push for that, um, that deal to be agreed. Um, and players are more powerful now than they used to be, but ultimately a club has to want to sell you. And we saw that, um, I think last summer or the summer before with Harry Kane, when Man City were trying to sign him, they wanted that striker. But Daniel Levy, the owner of Christ, uh, Tottenham, decided, nope, he's not going. And if if he refuses to sell them, then he can't go anywhere. In terms of contracts, yeah, there's loads of different clauses. It's very often you have a, a basic salary, so you have a, a weekly wage. And then you'll have an appearance money, which pretty much most people's appearance money throughout the squad is the same. So, okay, this is your this is your weekly wage. You'll get an appearance money, which everyone gets the same on top, which is this. And then strikers will get a goal bonus. Sometimes um, uh, defenders will get a clean sheet and goalkeepers will get a clean sheet uh, bonus. So if they keep a clean sheet or a certain amount of clean sheets, they'll get um, some more money. And sometimes um, there's signing on fees. So you get a lump sum at the beginning of each season. So a big payment at the, end, the beginning of each season, just... Um, you know, a lump sum payment. Okay. I want to take you to the end of the 2001 season and the playoff semi-final against Wigan. That was a great game for you. Can you talk to us about what happened in that game and what are your memories of it? Yeah, it was an emotional time because I'd gone to Reading and um, was sort of three years in, two years in, and I damaged my cruise ship. Very last pre-season game, I damaged my cruise ship. And um, I told you about uh, an injury I got just a few games after signing for Birmingham. And um, this was the similar injury, the same injury, but on the other side, on the other leg. And, um, you know, I, I was out the whole season. I managed to come back at the end of the season. It's a really good story because I got injured and I, I knew my knee wasn't good. So I went for a scan. The results of the scan came back and they said, you know, you've got to go and see um, the manager, Alan Pardew. And uh, he said, it's not good news for us. He said, you've done your cruise shirt. So I was like, oh, 
And he said, you, you're not going to play again this season. And I'll be honest, Tom, I just felt like bursting out crying. One week before the start of the new season, I was fit. I was ready to go. And then the whole season was taken off me like that. And I didn't know what to say. So in the moment, I just said the first thing that came in my mind, which was, I will play this season, Pards. And what's more, I will have a big impact on this season. And he said, fair play, off you go. And I went out and from that moment, I started to plan my rehab and my, 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 my plan of action towards getting back to playing. So, okay, when can I have the operation? What do I have to do as soon as I come out from the operation? When can I start jogging, um, checking and turning, ball work, contact sport, training, back to playing. I almost mapped it out. Okay, so first month, I've got to get full flexion on the knee and full extension on the knee. Then in three months, I start running, four months checking and turning, five months back to training, six months back to, you know, ready for selection. And, and I sort of planned it out. And that gave me something to cling on to, if you like, a framework to cling on to, to keep me straight focused on where I, I wanted to go. And I came back and, and played before the end of the season. And then the game you're talking about at the Medeski Stadium, I was on the bench and, um, um, you know, we were one nil down and and came on with, I don't know, five minutes to go. And and just it just, just happened to sort of, It'd be my moment and two opportunities. I I got uh, set the first one up and the second one got brought down for a penalty and, and scored the rebound. And it was just, you know, the sort of defining moment in lots of ways in my career. It was just a crazy, crazy night. It was lots of, it was a really sort of, um, emo you know, emotionally and physically charged night because it was a semi-final second leg. And um, it was a lot of mist that came down over the Medeski Stadium, so you couldn't you couldn't quite see, you know, the full length of the pitch. It was really sort of an eerie feeling. And then when that goal went in at the end, the second goal for us to be winning two one with the last kick of the game, really, you know, fans rushed on the pitch. There was horses, mounted horses, and police on the pitch trying to get them off. It was like just this crazy sensation of, of, of audio and visual senses and, um, you know, stimulus. And it was just, it was just amazing. I still can remember it and picture it now. Picture Path is an award-winning visual timeline app that is empowering individuals with autism. This free app provides users with a simple way to plan out activities, such as going to a match or theater, using structured timelines to reduce stress and anxiety. Users create a visual timeline that caters to their specific daily needs allowing them to prepare for activities, events and routines. PicturePath provides a structure that enhances communication, promotes independence, improves memory recall and supports users to manage their day with confidence. Whether for personal use or in educational settings, PicturePath is the ultimate tool for individuals with additional needs, empowering them to manage their schedules, track progress and enjoy activities. PicturePath, download the app today. Um you got promoted the following season and that was a great season for you what made that team successful during that period and what was it like to gain promotion yeah i mean it was it was fantastic it was just such a great um it's just such a great season you know to sort of uh, and the way we did it we did it um against brentford on the last game of the season we needed a draw we went one nil down and then i don't know 78th minute curaton scored a, a fantastic little lob and and scored a great goal and um 
you know, it was just, it was just our moment. And then we all came back along the M4 and um, celebrated back at the ground. And it was just, it was just a great moment for the club. And as I say, it was the start of the club just rolling on sort of in terms of momentum. And, and then, um, you know, over the next few seasons, they got promoted and up to the Premier League, you know, somewhere where they'd never been before. So it was great to be part of it. I mean, promotion for any football club is a, is a magical experience. And, um, you know, they don't come along often. Some players go their whole career and never get promoted. So, um, you know, it's, it's a special moment. It's really, really nice, nice feeling. Great memories. Alan Pardew then left the club. He said in an interview that he understands why Reading fans boo him and do not like him. How do you feel when he left the club after you played so well under him and he be respected more by Reading fans? Yeah, I mean, I I, I get it. You know, I left, as I say, Brent, uh, Gillingham and got booed and, and Brentford didn't let me go when I felt they should. And um, I, I completely understand. I, I understand why Pard's wanting to go. You know, West Ham were calling, big club, you know, and he ended up going there and doing really well for them. So again, his decision to leave was vindicated. And um, I, I don't think it looks good um, when managers are put on gardening leave and, um, you know, there's a sort of acrimonious split. I, I, I do understand that contracts should um, count for something, but also in terms of professional development and professional growth of an individual, I think it's important that we do understand that people do want to progress. And and I think it was the right stepping stone for Pard. So I, I had no issue with him leaving. I was disappointed because, you know, he was good for me. I liked him. But um, I, again, I thought it was the right decision for him and it, it proved to be the case. Um, you had a number of injuries in your career, including two ACL injuries. As a player, how do you find those times out of the team and recovering? And how does it affect you as a player and your mental health? Yeah, a really good question. It's, it's the hardest thing as a player. You say to any former player, sports man woman person anyone whatever sport you know what's the worst thing about you know your your, your job your life your sport and it's it's most people will say injury you know and that's the thing that as we get older we pick up more injuries we find it more frustrating and that affects our mental health um being injured for long periods affects your mental health and coming to the end of your career when you actually can't do it anymore it's a tough time and it's it's um it's easy to think that just because um professional sports people um and especially football players um because they're paid a lot of money oh well you've got a lot of money you've got a nice house nice car nice lifestyle you shouldn't be um affected by negative sort of mental health um but that's just not the case because um you know we've all got a mental health like we've all got a physical health some people have good physical health some people don't have such good physical health and the same with mental health and there are times when we all struggle and there are times when we find life easier um but regardless of money or regardless of religion or or anything else there are you know there are real challenges in everybody's life and i'm not saying that we should all feel sorry for footballers, but they are subjected to the same struggles with mental health. And that's what I'm trying to get at. And um, injury is a really tough one. But I, like I said previously, having a plan and setting myself a plan 
Um, once I've got over that initial sort of disappointment, that initial different, you know, shock of, okay, I've got this injury, which is, I've, I, you can't, you know, very often you don't see an injury coming. Um, so you're okay. And then suddenly bang, you're injured. Okay. So once you've got over that initial disappointment, okay, how are you going to get yourself back to the best possible place that you can be? hopefully back on the pitch and playing. Um, and, and for me, that has to be by forming a goal. Okay. The end goal is to the, the end the objective is to get back to playing. Okay. So how do I need to do that? Do I need an operation? Do I need to just uh, let it settle? Do I need to then rehab it? How do I rehab it? What's the format for rehabbing? And so I'm a, a real sort of goal setter in, in everything I do nowadays. I, I set goals, I set challenges for myself and set deadlines for myself to try and move me back to where I want to be or move me forward. Do you understand? Yeah. Um, you moved around a lot playing for 14 clubs in total. Why do you think you moved a lot instead of settling out a few clubs for your career? Oh, good question. Good question. I sort of stayed about two or three years at, at clubs and then moved on. Um, I was lucky that um, um, I don't think really until right at the very end, I got released by anyone. I don't think I got released in my career. Um, so I was lucky. Um, um, why do I think that is? Well, goal scorers and if people score goals are always in demand um i sort of joke um um about defenders and um uh, goalkeepers um goalkeepers i think are the ones that when they're at primary school and um you pick your teams and they're the last one left and they either have a decision whether to go off and do something else or stay in football and just be a goalie but um uh uh, strikers are, are often in demand and um, thankfully I did score pretty much throughout my career and so there was always a demand somewhere um, so I probably once I got to a point where people, someone else the team I was with wanted to make a change then there was someone who wanted me so it was just a okay I'll go there I'll go there I'll go there that's my theory probably wrong do you play Tom do you play um I used to, but I haven't really had the opportunity to play again, but I do want to play football whenever I get the chance. And what's again. your position, Tom? Um, well, coincidentally, I, I used to play in primary school and my favourite role personally was striker. I occasionally did, did play in goal, but I always preferred oh. striker. Had I known you were a goalie, Tom, then I would never have agreed to do this podcast. <laughs> <laughs> oh, Tonight, by the way, as well, me and Adam, we're going to the Molyneux to see uh, Wolves v Crystal Palace. Uh, okay, okay. So you're a Wolves fan, are you? Yeah. Oh, I've got a friend who's a big Wolves fan and um, obviously ex-Birmingham fan, uh, ex-Birmingham player, uh, big rivals. And um, yeah, so I've, I've had, um, that was one of the, 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 the best games I ever played in was um, Birmingham versus Wolves at um, St. Andrews and absolute full house again, Tuesday night. So it was like the atmosphere was like supercharged and uh, just an amazing atmosphere. And uh, never forget um, about 30 seconds into the game, um, Wolves scored and just unbelievable. The Wolves end just erupted and it was just it was just like, whoa, sat there just or stood there just trying to take it all in. It was like, geez, man, it was one of my first games for Birmingham and uh, 
you know, to go from a crowd of sort of 3,000 at Gillingham, like I said before, to 6,000 at Brentford, then to 30,000. And then just the noise was just like, whoa. And that expectation that comes with that noise is is huge. Nice. Um, you were then captain of Brighton. What skills and qualities made you the best choice of captain and what sort of captain are you? Uh, just a nice question. But, um, you know, I was honoured to be captain. You know, I was only made captain once and um, I was honoured to be captain, um, you know, at, at Brighton. And I still am honoured to to have had that on my sort of CV, my footballing CV, because very often, very rarely do strikers um, make captains. It's usually midfielders and defenders or goalkeepers even, but it's usually someone that perhaps is, um, you know, more stable in, in st lots of ways. And I say that respectfully to strikers, but strikers are much more emotional up and down, whereas midfielders and defenders, they're, they're much more sort of steady characters and, uh, they probably can lead slightly better than a, than a striker. Um, the fact that a defender can see everything in front of him um, gives them a good vantage point visually to actually command and lead. Um, but yeah, it was it was amazing. What sort of captain was I? Encouraging captain was try to lead by example. So I was always industrious. I was always working hard, chasing down lead, you know, loose ends trying to make things happen for my team and, and and tried to just sort of get us all together you know we're better as a group rather than lots of little individuals and that's a, that's a message nowadays when we talk about culture in either a team or a, a, a club or an organization or a business it's such an important thing now that culture and um, so I tried to sort of say look you know this is us you know we, we make things happen and we do it together so that was really sort of my my sort of mantra, if you like. In the 2008 and 2009 season, you helped Brighton to have a great escape and stay in League One. You were injured towards the end of the season, but played in the last game of the season and scored the important goal. What are your memories of that? Ah, oh, I told this story um, two days ago, actually, um, as a guest at Wembley when um, Brighton played and I was an ambassador for, for Brighton for the day. And I remember it because I was injured and the team was struggling towards the bottom, but they went on a really good run. And I played no part in that because I had a knee injury. But leading up to the sort of last game of the season, when we had to win to stay up, I said, my knee's feeling pretty good. I'd like to go out and do some training. And, and so I did some training and went out onto the training ground and didn't train with the first team, but went and did some training near them. And I remember as I walked out onto the training ground, just like, um, you know, cheeky striker I went don't worry guys I'm back panic's over I'm here you know to which they were like oh god where have you been the last four weeks you know you know get lost in 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 not such a polite way and um so I trained a few days and felt you know what I think I can I think I can be all right the game started on the very last game of the season we needed to win one striker got injured after about 10 15 minutes calf injury and then at halftime, another striker got injured and, and the assistant came out and said, look, are you all right to come on? And I said, yeah, yeah, yeah. He said, are you sure? I said, yeah, yeah, yeah. So anyway, I came on and was running around. The knee was all right, but not quite right. But anyway, managed to get through and just 70 odd minutes in, someone's had a shot. I've followed it up. Keepers parried it out and I just tapped it in no more than two yards out, Tom, and then ran off and celebrated and, and, 
the whole crowd celebrated other than the team, my teammates and all the players um, in the, in the stand. Cause they looked, was like, Oh no, anyone but him, you know? And when I went back into the changing rooms, everyone celebrated, but I was like, players were like, anyone but him score the the winner after he's going, going panic over guys. I'm here, you know? So obviously um, it, it, it went down well, but there was a real sort of funny twist to it. You, do your uncomfortable situations bring the best or were out worse out of you? And can you think of a time where you were in an uncomfortable position? Yeah, lots of times. Yeah, lots of times. There are times. And, you know, there's a great saying. It's not, you know, it's it's where you stand in moments of challenge and adversity that, that really counts rather than when you where you stand in moments of comfort and success. You know, it's, it's sort of like that. And... You know, we learn a lot about ourselves when we are challenged. You know, it's easy to be happy and it's easy to be good and it's easy to be buoyant when things are going well, both in sport and in life. But it's much more difficult to, you know, to, to remain positive and to to and, and follow your, you know, follow your, um, you know, the path for a better life when things are really going against you. It's really difficult to remain motivated. It's really difficult to remain confident, um, you know, when things are not going right. So certainly when I had injuries and long-term injuries, it was really tough. You know, there was a time when I was at Reading and I got that injury that we spoke about when I was watching the team did really well and they were winning a week in week out and I'd go and watch and I was not part of it. It was like, Oh man, I don't want to watch this anymore. I'm fed up with it. You know, everyone's doing so well. The fans are happy, you know, and there was a part of it was like, I'd like them to miss me a bit, you know, and, and, um, that's the trait very much so of a striker. Um, but as I say, they're really, they're really good lessons for us to learn. So, um, yeah, there's been lots of times when, um, you know, I, I've suffered with um, either injury or loss of form. I went to Hull and struggled and really struggled. Went there and the manager that took me there got sacked and a new manager came in and I was I was pushed out right to the edges and some of the players were, you know, were a bit difficult and a bit funny towards me. Um, and And I sort of thought, well, I've got two options here i can either sulk and mope around and feel a bit sorry for myself or i can get on and, and take some action towards doing something about it changing my situation and then people will either change their mind about about me or they won't but i can't control that but i can control what i do and, and we spoke about taking action earlier on and um um you know i love um, I, I love Nike's slogan of just do it. You know, I, I say to anyone now, you know, if you're struggling with anything, just take some action in any direction you choose to think that is beneficial. You can always change your mind, but take some action and, and that just do it, you know, and that's what Nike's sort of ethos is. That's what Nike's message is. It's not about winning. Um, it's not about, um, you know, keep being better and better and better and better than someone else or even yourself. It's just about, you know, what, just keep doing it. Just, just do it. And, you know, that, that sort of forward momentum or that, that leaning into, um, you know, development in terms of physical, mental, and, and, and in all areas of your life is, is such an important message. So, uh, 
as long as we keep moving forward, then um, and I think we're winning. Indeed. After a second spell at Brentford, you were asked to become their manager for a bit. Mm. You even took the team to Wembley. How did you find your time as a manager, and is it a role you enjoyed? Uh, it was a learning curve. It was um, a time when the club was in um, a sort of a, a disjointed um, situation and um, I came in and I possibly might do things slightly differently now if I had the chance again. Um, but I soon um, became sort of apparent to me that, that management isn't where I wanted to be. You know, there was some other things I wanted to do. I wanted to sort of coach and help people rather than just sort of dictate and tell them what to do. And so I just decided quite soon after I sort of went into management that maybe management isn't what I really want. And I don't regret coming out of it. Um, um, it was a great experience. I enjoyed it. Um, but, I, I soon decided that it wasn't quite right for me. Did you want the Brentford manager job on a permanent basis? And why do you feel they didn't give it to you? Well, I did is the answer. And um, uh, I, I went in for an interview. But now when I look back, um, I probably shouldn't have done because I probably didn't stand any chance at all. In fact, I'm sure I didn't stand any chance at all in getting it. Um, so um, so um, um, why do I not think they got it? I, I think they were looking for a specific sort of... Um, uh, type of manager. They were looking for a manager that had a certain level of success, credibility and um, statistical um, success behind him. And I didn't have any of those. So uh, in truth, I don't think I stood any chance of getting it. Since retiring, you set up a company called The Goal Setting Coach. Can you tell us a little bit about it, please? And what do you do? Yeah, now, so, I mean, like we spoke about before, you know, when I, I got with Alan Pardew and he he straight away started to get into my sort of brain about the importance of setting goals. And, and he did that on a, on a sort of a team basis and an organisational basis. I mean, I, I, I'll tell the story that he came in within the first week of him taking over, he brought everyone into a meeting and, and we're all sitting around and, looking through our phones like we all do and distracted and said, come on guys, look, um, these are our next six games. How many points do we want for our next six games? And the sort of captain, Phil Parkinson, he's, he's just got promoted with Wrexham. Uh, so a great story for him, but um, he put his hand up and sort of 18 points, want to get maximum points from six games. And he then sort of, use the smart goal setting framework specific measurable achievable yeah yeah that's specific it's measurable it's achievable is it realistic well probably not we hadn't won six games in a row for probably three or four years you know and we were struggling towards the bottom to just suddenly win six games probably not realistic so he asked then the assistant captain ad williams and he sort of said 15 points and then he did something really strange he asked the kit man. How many do you think Ronnie Grant? And he, and I remember looking, thinking, why is he asking the kit man? He won't even, he's not even out on the pitch kicking a ball. And he asked the physio and he asked the masseur and he asked the chef and he asked the sports scientist and he asked the groundsman and he asked 
I'm thinking, why is he asking all those people? And he asked every player. And what we did is we came out with a, a rough um, number of points we wanted to achieve from these six games, which was, I think, 11 points. And we did the same for goals for and goals against and, and just set a bit of a plan about, OK, that's what we're going for for them these six games and breaking breaking the season down into smaller components. And then we um, sort of worked harder on the changing grounds and started changing things so we were better placed to achieve these points that we set ourselves and started to achieve these goals, these little mini micro goals. And everyone was given a card, a little print off of the set of goals for those six games that we've got. And uh, uh, we, we, we did that and applied that and we just missed out on the playoffs, which is the one we talked about at Reading, you know, where I, I came on and scored the two goals at the end or, or set one up and scored one. But the, the following season, we applied the same thing and we got promoted that following season, which we again spoke about. And when I went into the, chain, uh, the, the kit room uh, to get some kits the following season, um, I went up to Ronnie Grant and said, Ronnie, I need a new towel or I need this or I need that. And I looked over and on his pin board, his notice board was pinned up every one of those goals. And then it made me realise, you know what, that's why he was asked because everyone was buying into this. You know, it wasn't just the players, the kit man and the masseur, the physio, the groundsman, the chief executive, the sports scientists, they were all part of this as well. And that's the culture that he changed, Alan Pardew. So I use some of these stories and some of these lessons that I've learned from my time in professional football to help people now take their vision, apply a goal-setting framework to it, set a plan, and um, then take that to daily tasks. So um, that's that's my role now. So I work with individuals um, and I work with businesses. I work with schools. And I, I work with sports teams as well. So um, that that's really lear my learnings throughout my time in professional football and how can I apply that to everyday life. Before we finish, we would like to play a game with you that we play with all our guests. Mm. The game is called Wrong Answers Only. Oh. We will ask you a range of questions and you have to give us the wrong answer. Are you ready? Okay. Uh, I, I hope I'm ready. <laughs> Favourite ground you have played at? Uh, spotted dick and custard. <laughs> Best player you ever played with? Oh, that would be Bugs Bunny. <laughs> Highlight of your career? Uh, missing an open goal uh, at Wembley. <laughs> Favourite manager you played for? Um, I think I'd have to go back to where I started and probably say Beyonce. <laughs> the best thing about Nicky Forster is he's so good looking and he sings well and he's charming and rich and just an all round great guy. <laughs> <laughs> Thanks. Ryan that was surprisingly great. easy. <laughs> <laughs> right. I've got some questions for you now. Okay. So do I fire away? All right. Come on then. Favourite film? Jaws. Oh, man. You know that's my favourite film, right? Wait, really? 100%. Tell me why Jaws is your favourite film. I tell people this all the time, right? 
Well, we're, coincidentally, we're... I, w- I wanted to mention this. Uh, we we got Carl Gottlieb on the podcast a while yeah. back, who was like the executive uh, producer and co-writer for Jaws. And I only found out recently he also helped produce Jaws too. I only found that out recently, and I think he vaguely mentioned that on that one. But anyway, back back to why that film's my favourite. My three main reasons why it's my favourite film of all time is one, it helps Steven Spielberg's career. I've, okay. I'm still adamant if it wasn't for that film skyrocketing, he wouldn't have made you know how to make you know Back to the Future yeah. and yeah. all the other films like that. And um, the other thing is like there's a lot of symbolism to the film. Like I remember there was a theory a while ago that the real villain isn't actually the shark, it's the mayor. Because throughout yeah. all the film, he's just, you know, saying, you know, let's open the beaches, you know, yeah. it's fine, you know, just just ignore the problem. So technically, you know, that. And the other thing, the, the more you watch it, it's one of those films where the more you watch it, the more things you find out about it. Because I follow this person on social media called The Daily Jaws, and he talks about just everything Jaws related. And um, I need to, what's that on? What social media? Uh, that's on YouTube and everything else that we're on as well. Okay, like I'm gonna have to look at that. Then. What's it called? <laughs> the Daily Jaws. Oh man. Okay, I'm gonna give you my reasons why I love Jaws. Okay. Okay, I think um, it was um, some of the genius is that we only see the shark in it for about collectively for about three minutes in the whole film, don't we? So it's sure. a sinister suspense um, film, and yet the main thing we're all scared of. We hardly ever see it. So that's genius, that bit. Secondly, um, it spawned or created the sort of summer blockbuster. And there's loads of other summer blockbusters. It came out in the summer back in, I think, 75. And as a result, we've had loads of blockbusters. You look at things like um pirates of the caribbean they 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 release those now always in the summer you know that summer blockbuster movie and another great stat is that roy schneider um was offered either um a set fee i think it was fifty thousand dollars to play the part of chief brody or he was offered a cut of the profits and he just chose i'll take the cash i'll take the fifty thousand but if he'd taken a cut of the profits he would have earned sort of four, five, six times the amount, but he didn't, he just took the money, but he subsequently obviously earned loads of money, but great, great story. And the, obviously the other one was well, as Richard Dreyfuss as well, the young up and coming actor and um, Robert Shaw hated each other in, in real life. They hated each other. So the tension on set was, was real tension. Um, And it sort of manifested, it made for a great relationship. So Jaws is, Jaws is mine. So you passed that one. Okay, uh, what are your goals for the next one year? Hmm. Oh, this one's a really unique one. Um, I'd say my my three main ones is Go on. is one to learn as much as I can life wise. Like I feel like that's kind of sunk in for the past three years. Like you know, I need, I need more life skills. Like not only in the real world, like job wise, but also for home. I I tend to like just try and help my parents as much as I can and. Another, another thing that's also to do with life in general is is recently I've found it's a really good um, mindset to have to just actually learn things. Because, like, you know, in the past, you know, my attention span was quite low and I used to be, like, easily bored. But over the years, I've, I literally could listen to, like, anything. Like, I could just, like, someone could tell me, even if I didn't understand, like, for example, like, quantum physics, I'd still at least 
like you know they tell me i'll be like oh well i didn't realize that equaled that you know and then also like the infamous um you know the out the albert einstein one was like uh m equals like mc squared you know so that one <laughs> and um yeah it's just that's one of them so was it free that you said sorry no, as you know, you can tell me just what are your goals. So it can be one, can be two, can be as many as you like. Uh, I feel like the last one should be is to just it's just to just help others as much as I can because that 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 I'd say would be my last most important goal because I've been like that ever since my childhood. You know, oh. like if just to help others in different situations or. So even how with goals as well, because there's a lot of people that I look up to, whether it's in sport or for any other famous people. Like recently, I started looking up to a guy named David Goggins. Okay, yeah, yeah. And he's famous because he used to be a sea, uh, a Navy SEAL. And uh, yeah, he's just got one of those mindsets where like he will like stop at nothing. Like he, he's like, yeah, he's one of those influencers. Fantastic. Stay hard. <laughs> yeah. Okay. Um, okay. Tell me something about autism that I possibly don't know. Hmm. I'd say, oh, this one I've mentioned a few times, so I don't mind repeating this on the podcast. Have you ever heard of an autistic trait called echolalia? No. Echolalia is this form of autism, which it's actually quite common in autism. Like it doesn't matter where someone is on the spectrum. I've, I've noticed that not over, not only over the years, but also because it's gened on to me from my dad, because I've been convinced that my dad has a bit of echolalia, because even throughout my childhood, he quote things from both real life and movies. And I had that not only in my childhood because I was around and got used to it, but it's not only just for like good cognitive memory reasons, but it's also known to also be a coping mechanism. And I've, yeah, I just, I've noticed that not only in, uh, the the last school that I went to before Technol, which was Aldersley, which I not Aldersley, that's what I'm in now. Sorry, uh, Lakelands. I went to a school in Owlsmere before I went to Technol Wood, um, and they had like an autistic hub there. And I'm and I think for I remember two of the other students in the hub, they also had echolalia because I remember they were quoting stuff from either uh, YouTube or series or movies. Wow, I'm gonna I'm gonna look up that. That's that's what I'm gonna do today is look up that. Okay, um, last ones. You got either or. Okay, so you got to choose one or the other. All right. Okay. okay, so day or night. Uh, day. Coffee or tea. Oh, this one's really controversial. Coffee. Okay. Um, bath or shower. Shower. Uh, brown sauce or red sauce. Red sauce. Um. Salt and vinegar or cheese and onion? Oh, cheese and onion. Chips or crisps? Oh, wait. I That that almost fooled me on crisps. Crisps. Crisps over chips? Yeah. Controversial. <laughs> uh, uh, summer holiday, as in hot sun holiday or cold skiing holiday? Summer holiday. Ah, uh, nice. You've passed. You've passed every single one. Every, every week on the podcast, we like our guests to ask questions to each other. So we get a guest to ask a question, but they have no idea who the question is going to be for. This week's questions comes from our previous guest, who is Sky Sports Formula One presenter Simon Lazenby, who asks, you can choose three former teammates 
to be stuck on a desert island with, but you have to kill and eat one of them, send one of them out to get help in shark-infested waters, and keep the other one to help you survive. This is seriously tough. Straight, <laughs> yeah. away, straight away, John Parkin, okay, he's coming with me um, for food because he's the biggest footballer I've ever known. And I will have loads of food for a long period of time. So I'm taking John Park in as my um, hamburger joint. Um, <laughs> the one to go out, there's one that's going out, swimming out into shark infested waters. Yeah. So yeah, I'll. Um, I tell you who I'm going to send that. I'm going to send a guy called Ian Westlake. Okay, and I'll tell you why. It's a really good question. I'm going to send Westy out because he was an unbelievable swimmer. And he once said to Karen Pickering, who used to live near Ipswich and used to come to Ipswich games and said, I can beat you at a race. And everyone's like, shut up, Westy. There's no way. And he said, yeah, I can. I'm, I'm a good swimmer. And they did a race for charity and he beat her. And she was an Olympic um, medalist at swimming. So um, he was ridiculous. So he, he's got more chance than anyone. Um uh of out swimming a shark and if he doesn't and he gets eaten then he was irritating as well so um sorry Rusty, <laughs> <you've gone there. laughs> and the person who is going to be with me to help me um uh and it, uh would be uh, uh i i i think i would have to say um i played with david beckham in the England under 21. So I'll say David Beckham because if anyone's going to get any chance of being or more chance of being rescued, then um, out of everyone I played with, it's probably going to be David Beckham because he's probably more famous than anyone else I've played with. So um, just by the fact that I'm with him, I've got more chance of being rescued. So let's say David Beckham. Speaking of David Beckham, what was he like when he was with you? Really young kid, but really nice kid, really um, polite, really, um, you know, modest. And um, the season after he we played together in England, under-21s, um, he played for Man United and scored the, you know, goal from the halfway line against Crystal Palace and sort of shot onto the scene and burst. But he was quality even then when he played before that. And um, in fact, the goal I scored for England came off a free kick and he put the free kick in the box and I headed it in. So, uh, you know, just a just an amazing guy. And um, I don't suppose he'd probably remember me now, but if I ever bumped into him again, uh, I would say the same thing to him. He, even as a, you know, you know, he was a really nice guy before he got famous. And I look at him and think he's a, a really nice guy, even though um, the level of fame that he's he's got. Could you do the same, please? Can you think of a question for our next guest, please? But we aren't going to tell you who the guest is. The question could be anything you want. Okay. Um, um, I'm going to go back to... Um, um, it's a two-part question. So I'd like you to ask them, what is their favourite goal? Okay. Um, and I'm hoping um, it, they can relate it to anything that they've done. What's the favourite achievement or goal that they've had in their career? And what is their goal going forward for their life? What is their life goal? I would just like to say a big thank you again to everyone who listens to our podcast. Really appreciate it. Please continue to leave reviews and pass our podcast on to your friends and family. 
Thank you so much for taking the time to chat with us today, Nikki. We really appreciate speaking with you, and it means so much to us at the school to be able to have the opportunity to speak with you. Thank you. Tom, you're a legend, and um, listen, a nudge, because uh, we are uh, Jaws buddies. Good luck. Wow. <laughs> Pleasure, guys. Really enjoyed it. It was nice. As I say, I don't often look back on my career, so it is nice to do it sometimes, and it, it was really fun and um, amazing, Tom, that uh, Jaws is both. I, I thought you might have been doing it because you may have read somewhere, or um, but that's amazing. That's incredible. Small world, eh? Yeah, thank you. Okay. Guys, I appreciate your time. So, Tom, Nikki's just gone. How do you feel that podcast went? It went really, really well because, like, I personally, I didn't know beforehand how many times, was it 14 different yeah. clubs I changed to? Yeah, yeah. And my two favourite parts, I'm going to say, two favourite parts of the podcast was one, you know, I didn't realise, you know, how much he had to, like, face when, like, people were getting annoyed when he left Gillingham. And the other thing was was that I was really surprised that he's also a huge Jaws fan like I am. So it's great to know another person who loves that movie the same way I do. So thank you everyone again to listening to the podcast. We really appreciate your support once more. If if you're not already, everyone who's listening, make sure to follow us on our YouTube channel, which is GWS Sports Podcast, uh, Instagram, Facebook, Twitter, and TikTok. And uh, we'll see you all next time. Bye everyone. The TWS Sports Podcast combines autism and sport. This unique podcast is hosted by children with autism, and each week they interview famous sportsmen and women from around the world. The TWS Sports Podcast takes you deep into the sports star's career, their highs and lows, what happens away from the field of play, and so much more. This podcast is available on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, and all other podcast apps. The TWS Sports Podcast, where autism and sports combine.